This is fucking exciting. Yeah. We have Korean with the best hair I've ever seen. Oh. My producer, Isaac. Hey. I don't even know Isaac's last name. Lee or Kim or Park? It is the first one. It is Lee. Yeah. There you yeah. go. Are you recording, Augie? I am. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's leave this all in. <laughs> yeah, sure. So this is our second micropod, and we're going to talk about MSG. But before we were talking, Isaac was telling me a quick little story. Yeah, so last night, I just decided to uh, turn on Ugly Delicious on Netflix, which is your show. And uh, I watched episode seven, which is the fried rice episode. The part at the very end, there's a two-minute sequence where you talk about how cultures get underrepresented and you're making kimchi bokumbap, which is a kimchi fried rice with spam in it. And dude, I legit, legitimately teared up. Something about you making that and because I know your story, I've done however many pods with you already, you connecting back to your childhood. That's such an iconic dish for a lot of Korean kids. So for the listeners that are not Korean, explain what kimchi bokumbap really is. So kimchi bokumbap, it's a really simple dish, right? It's fried rice, first of all, but it has kimchi in it. It has a bunch of other ingredients, a bunch of other vegetables in it. Each person makes it differently. But for me, at least, what it represents is my mom's cooking. Mm -hmm. It's what my mom made for me for lunch, going to school at least a couple times every week. It's something that's quick and yep. something that I think Every household makes. It's like the spaghetti and meatballs right. for Koreans. And did your family use Spam? Yes, they did. You know, that's a really interesting ingredient that I was embarrassed to use. I grew up loving Spam, mm -hmm. right? In kimchi jjigae or like the stew or definitely the fried rice version of Bude jjigae. it. Bude jjigae. the army stew, amazing. And then somewhere along the way, when I got a little bit older, maybe in like elementary school or intermediate school, and then maybe I brought spam in and people were like, Ugh, you know, yeah. and it may not seem monumental to anyone else, but these moments when you are sort of ostracized because of what you eat, Oof. that is a fucking scarring thing for a kid. Absolutely. I have a story about that exact thing where I had a huge fight in the second grade. I was living in East Lansing, Michigan because of chapche. So chapche is this uh, clear noodle dish that Koreans make. It's delicious. So delicious. It's one of the best dishes in the world. Gluten-free. Gluten-free, healthy. And uh, I brought it to school one day, eating in the cafeteria. Mind you, I was like seven years old, and I was so excited to eat this dish. I was like, oh my God, my mom cooked chapche. I'm psyched for it. And the kids at the table where I was eating in the cafeteria started like pinching their noses. I remember this so vividly. They started pinching their noses and be like, ew, what is that? It looks like worms. Mm -hmm. And I got so irrationally angry. I'm seven years old and I'm just, I remember cursing. I remember cursing in, in both K Korean K and English. K-Rage. Yeah, it's that K-Rage of just like, because I wasn't like a jingoist when I was seven. I wasn't like, how dare you insult my nationality, insult my culture. I was just enraged that they're insulting my mother's food. You're insulting my mom. So I told them, let's go outside. So we straight up from the cafeteria, we walked outside and we had a brawl. It was me you against like seven other kids. You beat ass over chapche? You are, <laughs> I didn't, no, you, I didn't win the fight. I don't, think, I don't think I did at least. That's an amazing story. Thanks for sharing that. But it's also, I can imagine that very vividly myself, mm -hmm. having gone through versions of that without the fist fight. I sort of think that's amazing. I'm not condoning <laughs> violence, but come on, that was like... To be fair, I was seven. I'm, I'm now a pacifist, but I was very young. 
there's all of these things that are packed in the food and it's not just Asian food. It's anything that someone loves or is passionate about of their culture and is not widely understood by another culture, that's going to create conflict. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think is the best symbolism of that conflict and misunderstanding is MSG, monosodium glutamate, which we talked about in the fried rice episode. And I'm not going to say, hey, like you can't eat MSG or you can't use MSG. I'm simply taking the fact that if you understand the cultural aspects of MSG, I think it's undeniable that it's incredibly racist and it embodies all the hatred and ignorance that you experience as a Mm seven-year-old with chapche. And if you may not know what I'm talking about, like, how would you know? Because talking about MSG has never been anything positive in the mainstream media. It's always been vilified in horrible ways Right. when all science proves otherwise. You say in the episode, it's a naturally forming uh, it is. element. And, well, I mean, like, I'm not a scientist, right? But, like, <laughs> it's a salt. And people get really upset. You can have sensitivities. I'm mm-hmm. not, again, a, a medical scientist or doctor, but I know that you cannot be allergic to glutamic acid or you would die as a human. You just can't, <laughs> you can't live. Absolutely. And it was interesting to me is I'm okay if we're going to vilify MSG, but we should scrutinize every ingredient as much. Mm. And it doesn't happen. So why does MSG get singled out? It's almost entirely about the racial implications against Asian food. Right. And that sucks. It does. It sucks. It really does. And it was super cool to me to have Helen Rosner come on board because she recently wrote an article for The New Yorker about MSG and all of the bad that's associated with it and the fact that we should use it more. Hmm. Ian Mosby, who's in our episode of Fried Rice, he wrote a paper that is like just unbelievably powerful about why MSG has been vilified in America and associated with Chinese restaurant syndrome. So I don't want anyone to think, oh, these are just angry Asian dudes. (laughs) It's not. It's like, if you can understand this and empathize with this situation, I think it's going to better serve you understanding anytime someone else might be different. Yeah. So you and I are both Korean. You were born and raised in America. I'm a really white guy, (laughs) Korean. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I was was born in Korea, although I've lived here for the majority of my life. And I think Chinese people get a much worse rap than Korean people or Japanese people for that matter because they were working class for a long time. They were the first immigrants in America for East Asian people. And I find that the MSG characterization, the racist implications of that, that bled into Korean culture. So when I was growing up, a lot of my extended family would be wary of foods with a lot of MSG in them. And I didn't really understand why that was their perception of that certain food basically until I watched your episode Mm -hmm. because Korean people tend to empathize and sympathize with the white community, which is a really sad reality that as opportunistic as immigrants need to be, they associate themselves or they like to associate themselves with the hegemony as opposed to the other immigrants, as opposed to the other They assimilate. They assimilate. But they assimilate to the top, not to the bottom. Yeah, this is way heavier micropod. <laughs> I uh, didn't mean to do that. No, but I, I, was just gonna tell I think a it's, funny story I think about it's important to talk about. It's the same kind of ignorance when someone says, oh, you're Korean, you eat dog. Oh, Nothing man. gets me more fucking upset. Ooh, that. That's truly tough. 
I don't want to go down this rabbit hole about Bolshintang and, and Korean. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's a dying industry. People don't eat dog for the most part. No. Or, had it existed, yes, but it's like. Well, why did it exist? Why did Bolshintang exist? They were exist? fucking they starving. Were poor. They were, it's poverty. <laughs> it was a necessity. It was a survival dish. It wasn't like, man, this is some exotic cuisine that we're going to cook up because we're savages. This was born out of poverty of being imparalyzed by the Japanese and then torn no, apart by war. People may not understand yeah. why Korea is so fucked up. Historically <laughs> yeah. speaking, it's a small peninsula the size mm-hmm. of Florida. Yep. But for 2,000 years, what's happened? Just conquered by the Chinese, conquered by the Japanese. Mongolians. Mongolians, just been conquered left and right by its neighbors and somehow has retained its sovereignty as a nation, but is damaged. I always joke, and it may not be funny to many people, but I think it's funny. Sometimes humor is the best way to talk about how fucked up certain things are. Almost every Asian country has cool martial arts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not trying to diminish... Taekwondo. But in, in so many ways, Taekwondo is the art of self-defense. Yeah. And that should tell you everything that we had to develop the art of blocking <laughs> and defense because historically speaking, yeah. we were just getting crushed by our neighbors. The national sport is defense. Think about that. Our most famous military victory isn't really victory. It's the fucking turtle ship. <laughs> yeah. It's a turtle ship that, talk about a Pyrrhic victory. It's not even about winning. It's like... Yeah. We should we, probably we fended them off. That's our that's our signature military victory. Is we kept the Japanese from coming on our for shores like a day for one day. <laughs> it's insane. So yeah, I mean, one day we should probably talk about the Han and not to go way off topic about MSG. But the fact is, we could talk about all these different things about the stigma of being Korean, the stigma mm-hmm. of being Korean American, and the things that we eat because so much of it's embodied by MSG. You may not know about the turtle ship. You may not know about all the idiosyncratic inside baseball cultural knowledge of being Korean, but I'm pretty sure you might know what MSG is and the stereotypes associated with it. So, which is why I want to always use that as a, as a wedge. Can I leave with just one last thing? It's 2018 in today's day and age, Korean food is cool. Right. And I told you the top chess story how I got made fun of in East Lansing, Michigan for bringing a really delicious Korean dish to school and how nowadays if I had a child and that child went to school and brought chapche, her or his classmates would think that's cool. Right. This transformation within the last almost decade. 30 years. 30 years? Would you say? I'm talking a lot older than you. (laughs) When Bill, my boss, talks a lot about how K-Town has the best food, that just wasn't the rhetoric that I grew up with. For me, K-Town was always this dirty, nasty place. And now it's this bustling town. People go there to experience really good food. And that just wasn't the case. You know, I'm from Los Angeles. I grew up for the majority of my childhood here. And... I don't know. Why, why do you think that is? Maybe it's, maybe it's credit to you. No, LA never needed me. I think part of it is, honestly, maybe, there's a lot of reasons. One of the big reasons why Koreatown has emerged as this powerful force in LA culture mm-hmm. is simply because Koreans don't give up, right? And they're going to do their thing. Diligence. They have so much fucking grit. But deliciousness wins out. Yeah. And Korean food... Like most good food around the world is going to win out. If something tastes delicious and you don't know anything about it, right? It's going to be delicious. Like if you have a bias towards it, you're going to hate it. And Mm -hmm. I believe over time, deliciousness will actually always win. Yeah. 
I want to add one last thing, and this is not turning into a micropod. It's turning into a real fucking pod. <laughs> yeah. And I've been trying to talk about this because so many of the thorny issues in Ugly Delicious, I'm still working out. Whether mm-hmm. it's assimilation in a palatious Texas with the Vietnamese shrimping family, of course I would assimilate, right? We can talk about that another day. But there was a moment that I feel like I've gotten some criticism from from other people about me saying in New Orleans to David Simon about a white guy making kimchi. And let me give some context to this. Okay. The night before, we had dinner at a great restaurant in New Orleans, and it serves very traditional New Orleans fare. They had a plate of kimchi. Mm. It just didn't make any sense. And it was for like 18 bucks. It was like a trio of kimchi. I got fucking mad. And of course I had to order it. Sure. Did it taste bad? No. But my own bias was preventing me from appreciating it. Yeah. Before I continue. So I'm telling this story mainly to, I want to make sure that we break this vicious cycle. Yeah. Right. That we, me or you Mm -hmm. don't like alienate other people just because we've been shit on a little bit just through food. Right. So David Simon, of course, is right. America is the epitome of cultural appropriation when it's done well. But you have two kinds. You can do it well and you can do it poorly. Mm -hmm. And I think poorly is very simply disrespectful and it's not giving credit where credit is due and you're not educating. You're not showing homage. You're not loving the fact that you're here because of other people. Right. The best version of that then would be the polar opposite. You're paying respect. You're trying to preserve. You're trying to push it forward. You're basically trying to make it awesome. Yeah. So if that's my threshold, if I'm okay with that, right? Like, I'm not even think it's appropriate to say like Eminem and hip hop, like something like that. But Mm -hmm. like, if someone else is going to make great kimchi, so some kid from Buffalo, New York is making kimchi, my initial default setting is going to be, fuck you, (laughs) right? My initial reaction, and I'm just being very honest, is going to be like, hey, you can't do that. Yeah. I have to curb my default setting. And if I truly want to embrace diversity, if I truly want the world to be a more inclusive place, if I want to make sure that other individuals don't experience the ignorance that you and I both live through, Mm -hmm. I need to change my viewpoint. So let's dissect really quickly why you feel like if a non-Korean person in Buffalo, New York- It's irrational. It's irrational. It's simply ignorance on my end because of the suffering and ridicule that I endured. As simple as that. It's like, they can't just take something for free. And mm. this is you a very to pay for it. You, thorny, there was a cost for yeah. you. But like, it's such a thorny subject with so many things about cultural appropriation. And I want people to understand, I want this to be a, a dialogue and an open debate. And the only way we're going to be able to talk about it is by talking about it. And good, I'm not saying my viewpoint. in front of us. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying that my viewpoint's right. I'm working through this myself. And currently my position is, if I'm, trying to make decisions based on a higher principle of ideals, then I need to look at this man or woman that's making kimchi in Buffalo that traditionally might not have ever made it. I need to encourage them. I need Mm. to say nothing. I need to be, hey, maybe the best thing you can do is say, hey, you want some help. Mm. The only way they're going to become a superstar making kimchi is by fucking making kimchi. Absolutely. The worst thing I can do is be like, fuck you, dude. You can't do that. Yeah. That's where I feel like is like the only way I can truly embrace the principles that I want to live by is by not like being that person Mm. and trying to encourage this person that's making kimchi 
the best kimchi maker possible. Okay. I understand what you're saying. And I can only think of like the hypotheticals of this person, perhaps they're suspecting the Korean culture, right? Because I'm from the Korean American culture. So for example, like Post Malone, I don't know if you know who that Mm is. He's a white rapper. He's very controversial because he's not a proponent of the black community. He's not at least overtly respecting the fact that hip hop has roots within the black community. That's inseparable. That's inextricable. And I can see that happening with cuisine. I can see that happening with any cuisine. Let's go back to Post Malone. Sure. The probability of him becoming an iconic spokesperson for cultures other than his own is not that high. Sure. But we are now making a judgment on on a trajectory of Post Malone for who he is right now at the early age of like, what is he, 21, 22. 22. Yeah. How can he ever become a fully formed human being without going through this process right now? And we are judging him right now. Like he's not formed as a person yet. And maybe the only way he's really going to see the other angles is by actually like being him right now, which a lot of people are criticizing. It's a fair point. I think we have to like encourage people. People learn by making mistakes. Yes, you're right. And, that's it. It's like we live in a world of snap judgments right now where it's tiring because people are gun shy of fucking up now. Mm-hmm. And I think what we need to do if we really want to have a better conversation is if you see someone make a mistake, you hope that they're going to make more right decisions than wrong decisions. Right. And I don't know anything about Post Malone, but the fact of the matter is how much of it has to do with his cultural upbringing. He probably only understood hip hop culture through music and videos. He didn't understand anything potentially. I don't know anything about him. Probably through the internet. But maybe now because of his success, he's going to learn retroactively almost all of his mistakes. So I'm taking a very relative, relativist point of view and very pragmatic point of view is let things be. And Mm -hmm. you can only hope that with the right guidance and the right structure that they're going to make the best decisions possible over a long period of time. Like we're not robots. Yeah. Post Malone's not a robot. Yeah. And there's only one way this fucking guy is going to learn how to really appreciate the cultures that he's taken from. And I think that's through criticism and that's through him, like just living fucking life. And maybe it doesn't fucking happen, but guess what? There'll be someone else along the way. You're a much wiser person than I am, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. It does. I think you're a lot more open-minded than I am. I would like to think that way. I would like to be more empathetic that way. I I think there's a cynicism that's just innate in me. Well, let's go back to this. I think this ties into something I've been talking a lot with my friends in general. Mm -hmm. Like, we can tie this to sports. Sure. Josh Allen. What happened recently with Josh Allen? He got drafted. He got drafted, but what was the big scandal? He said some things. um, Inappropriate comments about African-American culture. Yes. And black people in general. Yes. I'm not condoning Josh Allen at all. Or whatever he did. He did it in high school. Mm-hmm. He grew up in an incredibly conservative part of California. And then he went to college in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. He did not have access to like the world at large. I am not condoning what he did. I simply want to understand why someone would say something stupid like that. No one wants Josh Allen to be a xenophobic individual that hates anyone else other than like white people. Especially in the NFL, I think he's going to have to learn real fucking quick. (laughs) Real quick. Real fucking quick that like, wow, I'm the fucking minority here. Yeah. Where do you think Josh Allen might be in fucking 25 years? I would hope that he would be a lot more open-minded and a lot more understanding of different cultures and not saying the stupid things he said in high school. Right. Because now he is fully immersed in a world of diversity, 
yep. that's being forced upon him. Beforehand, he was a product of the culture around him. Yeah, we're all products of our environment. And this is where I'm going to judge Josh Allen. If Josh Allen, 25 years from now, is still a racist motherfucker, then fuck him. But if he's not, hey, he's just living his life and he's learned from it. Yeah. But that's just how I'm Simple taking everything right now. It's like, I'm trying so hard not to make judgments because once you do, you might actually fuck up their process. Right. Sometimes you just got to encourage it and be like, have a dialogue and talk about it. Well, I think if I learned anything today is that I have a lot more to learn <laughs> from the great Dave Chang. <laughs> no, it's not great. I'm just, this is stuff that's on my mind a lot. And I, I, this is how I'm thinking. And I'm, yeah. nothing is set in stone, you know? And all of this was a micropod that turned into not a microphone. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me here. Thanks for listening, guys. Um, I don't even know how to end this fucking show. (laughs) Uh, Please look forward to the Helen Rosner interview. Thank you. You can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for listening to the Dave Chang Show. You should do it. Yeah, thanks for listening to the Dave Chang Show. We got the Helen Rosner interview coming soon. Talk to you soon. Okay, so we're not ending the podcast. (laughs) After we ended the podcast, False alarm. we all decided to talk a little bit more. Yeah. Can you explain our other- Yeah. So Augie, producer here. What's up? She came over and, and we talked about how this is going to be perceived and the further viewpoints that could have been established on top of the conversation we just had. Augie, want to chime in here? Yeah. So I mainly was just thinking about like- The idea of being empathetic towards people like Josh Allen or Post Malone or just white people, these like specifically like in this situation and often outside of this situation, like white cishet men who kind of have all of this privilege and have the freedom to have certain viewpoints and you know, people give them all kinds of excuses for being locked up in a bubble and then having problematic views. And it just makes me think about how us as like people of color we don't have that privilege like we we don't have the privilege of staying in our bubbles because we literally have to code switch and assimilate and do different things to like break away from our identities in order to like survive yeah and so that's kind of the frustration with being empathetic towards them is because you go through your entire life just feeling like frustrated and tired when you look at people who can get away with certain things and get away with not looking outside of their bubble. And and I think that's kind of what I was just thinking about. And also, for example, with like Josh Allen, like being in a predominantly like white town in high school and then going to college in Wyoming, it's like you have the internet, you have potential things to like open up your world. And so it's just hard for me sometimes to like give them those passes. But Dave, I do understand like what you're saying, which is that this moment in time does not define who any one person is. Like we evolve, we all have, you know, things we've said or thought in the past that we don't believe or or whatever now. But like I said, I think it's just like frustrating because again, we don't always have the the moments of being able to have a pass for some of those thoughts, I guess. And we should establish for context, Augie, you are Ethiopian? Yes. You're from the South, you're from Louisiana? I am from Louisiana, yeah, so... Dealt with a lot of <laughs> a lot of the same things you guys were talking about with like either your food and culture being disrespected when you were younger and then growing up and now it's all the rage in you know places like LA, DC, New York, like Ethiopian restaurants are now almost like fine dining depending on like where you go. And it wasn't always like that. People look down on eating with your hands, people look down on the way food smelled. 
And it was not fun. And even now to this day, like I'm still very protective of who I take to certain restaurants or like who I talk to about Ethiopian food because you just have to protect yourself and kind of gauge who is going to be welcoming and understanding and who is still going to have that grimace on their face when you contextualize a huge part of your culture. It's a tough position to take. And um, I thank both of you guys for like sharing this. This has gotten way deeper than I I thought we would ever talk about. Um, (laughs) The ability to make a judgment on somebody over a period of time is hard. And you guys are right. It's easy to say, hey, people of color, we need to be patient with Mm -hmm. anyone else that isn't. That's not very fair. But my suggestion is the only person that can make that decision, that can make that compromise, is the bigger person that has the ability to see the other perspective and to empathize. If someone is going to choose to be ignorant, they're not going to have the ability more than likely to empathize the situation. Yeah. So the only agent of change then to make this situation less awful is for those that are being picked on to be the bigger person. And not bring them out to the courtyard and fight them. <laughs> right. And one, that's, one on that's hard, man. And, <laughs> and I'm talking about this right now. And I just thought of, uh, you know, you were saying Ethiopian food in D.C. And I, I read that in D.C. there's a white guy that is opening up a Korean barbecue restaurant mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. My initial reaction was, fuck this guy. <laughs> it still is not making me feel good. Yeah. But I am trying to, and I told myself this, that. I'm going to practice what I preach to myself, that Mm -hmm. instead of trying to make sure that terrible things fall upon this business, that I'm going to try to be supportive as much as possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's not easy for all the things that you guys are talking about. But there's only one person here that can make that change, right? Mm -hmm. And he's already made his decision. And maybe he already knows, but the best thing I can do is to make him see differently. Yes. And the worst thing I can do is open up a competing barbecue restaurant across the street, (laughs) which is what I thought about. Mm -hmm. And maybe, I don't know, it's a very touchy, awful thing to talk about. But the other thing that I wanted to add is all these conversations about race or basically anything that is in the news today, it's flawed topic in the sense that we believe that the conversation and the change can happen in our lifetimes. That's also true, yeah. It's kind of depressing to hear that. It is, but... (laughs) It's quite possible that our job is to push it as forward as much as humanly possible so the next person can take it over, right? Yeah. And it's all going to take time. And I, I'm the biggest pessimist, man. <laughs> and this is the most optimistic you'll ever fucking hear from me. Yeah. I guess my cynicism is how long do we need to pass the torch? How many more times does the next generation of minorities, of uh, the next generation that are oppressed for them to kind of rise above the top? And I feel like it's really important to say Asian Americans have it good. We have it all right. It's fine. Like, mm-hmm. But for the Hispanic community, for the black community, and for the maybe non-cis community, for the non-straight community, for those the trans- people— transgender community. Transgender yeah, communities. Exactly. I mean, for them, how much longer do they need to keep passing the torch while the oppression continues, while the cycle continues? And you're right. saying that to break the cycle, we need to show empathy on our end of things. But the cynicist <clears throat> in me— The pessimist in me says, why should it be us? Mm -hmm. For me, like the most ideal situation, it's almost like that is happening now, but like slower. And I can't help but, and maybe this is a reach and please tell me if this is a reach. But when I hear there's like more 
Mexican restaurants being opened by white people or like, you know, Korean barbecue restaurants being opened by white people instead of like people fostering growth, like and having, you know, more Korean chefs coming up or more Hispanic chefs coming up or more Ethiopian chefs coming up and them having the opportunities and money and funding and stuff to like get their restaurants off the ground and like push their own cuisine forward. It almost feels like they're getting pushed out still even and and it's like I also understand like that we can't just be like oh white people stop cooking our food or stop cooking food or yeah I mean, that's, you, like, that's, unreasonable that's not too. that's like yeah. unreasonable and I get that too but I think what's touchy about all of this is there aren't enough white people I think in these positions of power and privilege who are taking a step back and giving the pedestal to like people of color who've been disenfranchised for literally like basically since this country has like existed and I think like I want to hear more from them like we're having this conversation now but like I want to hear more from like what are you doing in your positions of like privilege to like help bring in more marginalized communities to be able to like step up and also be on a level playing ground. And I feel like those conversations are not happening enough and like those moments aren't happening enough, which is why we're going to continue like in this cycle, because the people who actually can help change things aren't doing it. They're instead like breaking off and and kind of putting themselves back into that position of power and continuing to pass that down in their communities. And so I think like that's Isaac to like answer your question. That's probably why generations and generations are going to keep dealing with this. And it's like a sad thing to think about because like you want to think that we can be the ones to end it, but it like doesn't seem like that. It doesn't seem like that at all. Yeah. It's hard to disagree with anything you just said. <laughs> Depressing note to end the podcast. I'm sorry, I'm no, sorry. It, but here's the thing. It's so important to talk about this. And if you're it listening is, to this, is. have a conversation and Nothing can happen unless we can talk about it. And these are the thorny things that I don't think any three of us have ever had these kinds of conversations, particularly on a fucking podcast. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) But the fact is, if I'm a young kid or if I'm someone that has never had this conversation, but I thought about it and I'm listening to this right now, I'm like, oh, fuck, this is really important for me to hear. And you may disagree with us, by the way. We're giving you our points of view. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely open to... Nice tweets (laughs) that can help like expand our views because I definitely do agree that it's a process for everyone and we're all still learning. And even though that's like touchy, that on its own is kind of like a touchy thing. I think like I'm absolutely open to learning more and I've learned a lot already from both of you guys. So, all right. That was fun. That was fun, fun, guys. Thank you so much. And uh, now this is the real end. This is the real end. (laughs) All right. No false alarms this time. Thanks for joining, guys. <laughs>